Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. With wildfires raging in Utah and other areas, we're turning to writer Gary Ferguson today for a timely discussion about wildfires. These days, wildfire season is burning longer and hotter, affecting more and more people, especially in the West. Ferguson's book, Land on Fire, The New Reality of Wildfire in the West, explores the science behind this phenomenon and the ongoing research to find a solution. It details how years of fire suppression and chronic drought have combined to make the fire situation so dire. Ferguson also brings to life the extraordinary efforts of those responsible for fighting wildfires and explains how nature reacts in the aftermath of the flames. Gary Ferguson's written many books on nature and science, including Hawk's Rest, A Decade of the Wolf, Great Divide, The Carry Home, his articles have appeared in Vanity Fair, Los Angeles Times, and other publications. His lectures on wilderness are a culmination of 30 years of researching and experiencing the marriage of wildlands, history, myth, and narrative psychology. Gary Ferguson, welcome, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Great to be with you this morning. Appreciate you uh, being with us. You write in your afterword and other uh, places in the book that uh, this is, uh, you explore the science and uh, all of the ins and outs. This is also personal. You, you write that uh, you and your neighbors there in southwest uh, Montana, uh, this time of year, you're, uh, you're going out the door and smelling the, the, the air to see if there's smoke. Well, it's really true, Tom. I'm in uh, the, uh, as you say, southwest Montana in the mountains, and the summer has always been a a very precious season to those of us who endure a long uh, winter and a troubled spring, and it's still uh, a wonderful time of year, but increasingly uh, with evacuations becoming more and more common uh, with fires uh, at our back door where we're exactly, as you said, walking out the door and, and turning our noses to the air and sniffing for smoke and watching the flags on the top of the banks and the post office to see how hard the wind is blowing. And uh, there, there's a kind of at least low-level anxiety that attends a lot of our summers uh, these days, and I think it's going to be that way for many, many decades to come. And uh, poignantly, and I hadn't focused on this because I'm not living directly in the you know, wildland-urban interface, but uh, I guess some points when, when the fire potentially is getting near, you've got uh, boxes near the door with your valuable belongings so you can get out fast. Yeah, that's right. The uh, incident command folks, uh, through their media person, kind of keeps the community informed. And uh, if it looks like an evacuation may be possible in the next few days, then that's exactly what we do. We get the the most precious things. You know, there's that kind of parlor game exercise sometimes. If you had to leave right now, what would you put in a box and take with you and maybe never see the rest of it again? And we, we get to play that game on a fairly uh, regular basis. And then uh, that way, if the evacuation order comes, we can... Load, uh, load all those boxes into our cars and, and drive away and keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. Uh, the firefighters are doing a heroic job, but uh, the fires we're getting today are increasingly uh, so severe and so big and so hot that it's, it's awfully difficult to, uh, to keep uh, some structures, some subdivisions from going up in smoke. Uh, folks in southern Utah, the Bryan Head Fire, which is uh, thankfully getting uh, under control, have uh, had to go through this uh, recently, you know, to decide when to leave, when to stay, and, and uh, what's, what's going to happen. Um, I wonder, um, maybe we can tackle this. You, you say one of the central themes of the book is we're going to have to accept this, have to live with uh, fires that are hotter, faster, longer, bigger. Well, that's true, and it's for a couple reasons, as you suggested in the opening of the program. One big reason being uh, that beginning in the early 20th century, we got very aggressive toward putting out all 
wildfires. And, and the fact of the matter is, wildfire is on uh, some levels a very, very healthy force of ecology. It controls disease and pathogens in the forest, and it's certainly in the Intermountain West. One of the biggest things that it always did uh, across thousands of years was to burn these uh, dropped trees and, and branches, sometimes referred to as the fuel load. Uh, these, these regular natural maintenance fires, stand maintenance fires, they were called, would burn through every eight or 10 or 12 years. And and clean that forest floor. Well, when we started aggressively suppressing them in the early 20th century and did so for about 70 years, we allowed, we allowed an enormous fuel load uh, to build up. And right now in the, in the West, we've got about 300 million acres uh, that are under heavy fuel load. And that, that's roughly three times the size of California. So we're not, we're not in good shape. And you bring that uh, up against uh, the issues and the matters and the facts of climate change, and it's, a, it's sort of a perfect storm we're going to have to be wrestling with for a while. I wonder if you could take us back uh, to, so we can compare and contrast. So before the, uh, the megafires, before the, the, the current reality, um, I guess what scientists call stand maintenance wildfires, what, what takes in de- greater detail what happened uh, in that era? Sure, and and this isn't to say that sometimes big what we call megafires today didn't happen historically, but they were very rare every century or century and a half. Typically, these stand maintenance fires were uh, small. They you can imagine flames six to eight feet tall, uh, temperatures of about twelve hundred degrees, which sounds plenty hot, but uh, in fact, it, it typically was not hot enough to destroy the more mature trees. And uh, they would burn through in a fairly uh, kind of a mosaic pattern, leaving some patches of woods completely unburned. So you'd always have uh, seed trees uh, available. And then, um, you know, also an interesting thing to mention is the Native American communities knew for thousands of years that burning uh, fires, especially grassy areas where animals grazed, would be... Uh, a, a good idea because it returned a high level of, of nutrients to the soil, grew better grass, and that attracted better game and allowed them to, to feed themselves. One thing it's really important to remember is that in the, in the world of nature, all plants eventually you know, have to go back to soil to, to re-nourish the soil and allow the next flush of life to occur. And that either occurs through decomposition or fire. And in the Intermountain West, it's so dry we don't have a lot of decomposers, uh, not enough moisture. So the only way that that nutrition goes back to the soil is is through these these fires. And now compare, uh, uh, so these these stand maintenance fires, maybe they'd burn, oh, 500 to two or three thousand acres uh, would be fairly typical. And now we're looking at these uh, so-called mega fires, which are burning. Uh, that's loosely defined as 100,000 acres in a single event. And I think Brian Head right now is about 65,000 acres. So much bigger, much hotter because of the fuel load, and uh, much uh, more difficult to fight also because of conditions brought on by climate change. One of the uh, startling statistics uh, here, you'd, uh, you quote this in the book, wildfire season is longer today than in 1972 by 75 days. Yeah, that's really uh, astonishing. Uh, when I when I uncovered that uh, fact through my research, I was I was surprised. And to be honest, I'm not sure if it isn't creeping up even as as we speak. There are a couple reasons for that. Uh, as as situation has has been brought on by climate change, our temperatures have warmed by about two and a half degrees since the 1970s. Um, that and the lower humidity associated with warmer temperatures that's taken the snowpack off 
earlier than it used to go off in the mountains. Uh, certainly you could see that in, in many years in Utah anyway. Um, and when that snowpack goes off, it exposes the forest to uh, drying effects of the sun and the wind. And then on the backside in the fall, we're getting much warmer uh, and often windier temperatures uh, than we used to. Again, um, that's a lot of it anyway is being assigned to uh, a, a warming climate. So, yeah, we've got a lot, lot bigger uh, fire season than we used to. In fact, over in Colorado, um, this last uh, February in Boulder, a fairly major fire broke out. So there are parts of the West where the fire season is uh, getting close to being eight months long, which is just pretty astonishing. That's uh, that's incredible. Given all the resources go into fighting fires, and we're going to do that as well. You have a chapter in the book on those who fight fires, so heroic efforts, and a lot of money goes into it. Uh, I wonder if we get into greater detail on why, why the why the mega fires, why hotter and and, and faster. One one fact that you've mentioned is uh, the ongoing drought. Yeah, you know, we, we've actually had in the West since the new millennium, since 2000, three major drought periods. And, and, and that's quite significant compared to what historically and uh, from what we can tell from climate records and in uh, core samples and, and tree ring studies and so forth. It's, it's been exceptional for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's been nothing like it. Those drought periods, the first one from uh, 2000 and 2004, uh, the last time we had such dry conditions was in the Middle Ages in about 1200. So we're, t- we're talking about the time somebody was inventing the windmill in Europe, way, way, way back. We had another drought uh, that went roughly from 2008, 2011 in the southwest of California. That was uh, a rival to the Dust Bowl conditions. And then uh, a third one from 2013 through 2015. We've also set five records for the hottest years on the planet since 2000, and the last three of those were 2014, 15, and 16. So as you can imagine, there's a couple things going on. That that dries out the forest, and it, it really stresses the trees. And the drier the forest is, the easier, of course, it is to burn. But on top of that, by stressing the trees, either by killing them outright because they're not getting enough water or making them vulnerable to insect infestations because they're weakened by drought, we're getting a a number of trees actually dying from from those conditions. In fact, uh, your listeners might be alarmed, as I was, to learn that last year in California alone, the year 2016, 60 million trees died. And so uh, now back to our earlier discussion, what's going to happen with those dead trees is they're going to stand for eight or ten years, and then they're going to fall over and accumulate even greater fuel loads. So when the fires break out, we've got drier forests, we've got bigger fuel loads, and we've got actually a little bit more wind happening than we used to, too. So that that combination uh, is is really uh, quite devastating, or it can be. You know, not that fire still doesn't perform a a good service, but when you've got so many people living in this, what you call the wildland-urban interface, um, the the threat to human life and, and structures is going to be really significant. That's, I mean, it's ominous. you got greater and greater fuel loads just waiting for bigger and bigger fires. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, when, when we think of how many people are potentially at, at risk here, um, the United States has about 2.3 billion acres of of land that makes up the United States. And of that, a a billion are in this wildland-urban interface. And we can define that easily by just saying it's the 
place where large uh, swaths of vegetation come up against human structures. Uh, and, and so 120 million people living in the wildland urban interface, uh, 200 million acres of that has been now deemed as very high to severe fire risk. So, um, th- yeah, the, the, the future is going to be a, a little difficult. There are things we can do, but it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing to consider sometimes just by the sheer magnitude of it. Yeah, I want to get into that a little later. You, you, you've talked to some scientists, uh, read some of their work, that are working on this, what can be done. Uh, one of the other things uh, you, you compared and contrasted, you know, before humans and after humans, uh, humans, of course, brought animals with them, uh, cattle and such, grazing, which apparently promoted other species coming in. You've got invasive grasses and shrubs coming in, which act as flash fuses, as you call them in the book. Yeah, that's true. And and some of the worst, you know, the invasive plants that we're talking about are things like cheatgrass, which most of the, the things we're trying to control on our, our cattle ranges and sheep ranges right now are, in fact, invaders that were brought over from Eurasia in the late 1800s by, by accident. And the thing about some of those invaders is they're very uh, capable in, in drought conditions, whereas many of our native plants are less so. So, in other words, when a big hot fire goes through, cheatgrass, which is now occupying 100 million acres of the American West, is really good at starting growth on freshly burned soil. It puts down rootstock very quickly. It outcompetes the native grasses. And the, and the real frustrating thing for a lot of ranchers with cheatgrass is that uh, after the initial flush of green, uh, so by early June, the nutrient value is completely gone. So it doesn't really serve them as a grazing plant, doesn't serve deer, doesn't serve elk. Uh, and, and that, that thing you talked about, flash fuse, is especially true with a plant like cheatgrass because it dries out by the middle of June. Uh, so you've got a big, big carpet of dead, dry grass in places that would not have been marked with that even 30 or 40 years ago. And so if a fire does start, it, it, it is like holding a match to flash paper. It's just phenomenal how quickly it can spread. And so areas that would not necessarily have resulted in a forest fire before can because of the, uh, the depth and the, uh, the heavy uh, growth of the, of the cheatgrass. You also, uh, you talked earlier, I wonder if you go into more detail about fire suppression, that that's a part of the picture here. You write in the book that we once believed we could all but eliminate wildfire. There's a bit of hubris there, of course. Yes, yes, more more than a bit, I, I would suggest. Um, well, it's it's interesting. The Forest Service was established by Teddy Roosevelt in 1905, and it was charged with really taking good care of the mostly at first Western uh, forest preserves that had been created. And part of the the concern was that there had been such an abuse of those uh, watersheds. Uh, back in New England, that these federally owned forests in the West, uh, it was determined by Roosevelt and others that they needed to be cared for. And he appointed a guy named Gifford Pinchot, who was a very practical guy. He wanted to make sure the trees stayed healthy so that they could be available in part for uh, commercial timbering operations, as well as uh, to, to protect the fact that the forest was capturing and storing water for farmers and communities. Um, but they couldn't get a lot of traction in Congress with the Forest Service. They, the Congress was just not having it that we needed another agency. And uh, lo and behold, five years after Teddy Roosevelt created the Forest Service in 1905, there was something called the Big Burn uh, that just was 
a pretty catastrophic fire in eastern Washington, northern Idaho, and western Montana. It killed three million acres of trees. And if you can imagine, if you would pile those trees into a railroad car, uh, you would have a train 2,400 miles long. It was just a devastating fire. Eighty-six people were killed, entire towns wiped out. So Pinchot went to Congress and said, look, you need an agency that can respond to these fires. And we essentially at that point went to war on wildfire. There was a uh, a rule that uh, Pincho came up with called the 9 a.m. rule that any fire that breaks out, we're going to have it out by 9 the next morning, which, of course, is, is ridiculously optimistic. Uh, we, we can't do that even today. But it started this long, long era of seeing uh, ourselves at war with wildfire, sort of ignoring the healthy role that wildfire can have. And that went on until roughly after the 1988 fires of Yellowstone National Park and land managers started saying, Wow, we really do need to let some fires burn. We need to have some way to clear this uh, this big fuel load that we've let accumulate over 70 years on the forest floor um, be eliminated. And so that that's a bit of uh, of, of the history. Smokey Bear did a really really good job and still does to this day. But but we were a little over enthusiastic to say the least. What's the what's the prevailing attitude now? Do you think it's uh, you know. There are pressures to continue fire suppression on a big level, and including more and more people are living in the wild and urban interface. What what are the other pressures? Well, yeah, and and certainly most of the now in a typical year, federal and state monies were spending four and a half billion dollars just on fire suppression, and the vast majority of that money does go as it should to protecting people's homes and and businesses. So that's where we're putting our our efforts. Um, there is certainly among land managers and fire ecologists a, a very strong sense that we do need to let some fires where it's appropriate burn, where they're not going to threaten structure so we can get rid of some of this fuel load. And we also need to do something called thinning, which is to go in uh, where we can and take out some of the crowded young trees that are particularly flammable and can turn what would be a, a stand maintenance fire into a real inferno. Both of those those uh, projects, though, thinning and prescribed burning, um, take a lot of uh, work. They take a fair amount of money, and they're not without controversy. Sometimes people don't want uh, prescribed burns to go on near their communities because they're afraid of uh, the smoke and the damage to their health, and they're afraid of uh, those fires getting out of control. Likewise, thinning uh, is fairly expensive because if you don't have a road system in place, uh, you have to build one, and that's both expensive and somewhat controversial depending on where those roads are. So, you know, these are things that need to be done, um, but they're they're not not the easiest things to to um, have happen. I suspect that we're going to see more hopefully funds and effort put into these kinds of projects, though, in the decades to come, because we're going to experience these these mega fires with such regularity that people are finally going to say, look, we, we've got to do everything we can. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with Gary Ferguson. His new book is Land on Fire, the New Reality of Wildfire in the West. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, presenting the Cache Valley Foodie Trek, access to the National Forest, and live theater opportunities. More information available online at explorelogan.com. And... When you think of an engineer, what comes to mind? 
Do you think of creative problem solvers who design life-saving tools and modern technologies that each of us use every day? Or do you think of Dilbert, the famous comic strip engineer with his signature striped tie and pocket protector? It turns out our perception of who engineers are and what they do is a little skewed. And now, engineers are trying to change that. Across the country, engineers and engineering educators are changing the conversation about engineering. They're recruiting more women and a more diverse workforce and showing students that engineers are innovative people making a positive difference in our lives every day. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering an engineering education PhD to empower tomorrow's engineering education leaders. Learn more at engineering.usu.edu. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking about the very timely subject of wildfires. The book is Land on Fire, the New Reality of Wildfire in the West. The author is Gary Ferguson. You're welcome to join the conversation. Love to hear from you. What's been your experience with wildfires? Are you living uh, in the wild lands? Uh, do you like Gary Ferguson and his neighbors uh, this time of year? Uh, sniff the air and uh, maybe get ready for evacuation. What are your thoughts uh, on this? We have uh, we have the ongoing now uh, nearing uh, controlled uh, Brian Head fire, which is not technically a mega fire. It's, uh, but but it's been uh, it's it's been quite devastating for uh, some uh, people in that area. Um, and uh, we'd love to get your thoughts. Here's how you can uh, contact us: one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five. One eight hundred eight two six one four nine five is our number, and you can email us to upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at uh, gmail dot com. So Gary Ferguson, uh, this uh, the increasing number of people living in the wildland urban interface, uh, increasing number of homes lost in these fires. Yes, and it's really uh, a bit sobering that wildland urban interface has since about oh, 1985 been being developed at the rate of about 4,000 acres a day. And yet, despite the fact that a third of our population in this country lives in the wildland urban interface, it's only um, about 16% developed. So that's where people want to move to. That's where they want to live. They want to have a bit of nature out their back door, understandably. But it's it's really a cautionary tale with what we're seeing now that these developments that are are going to come in the in the years to come are going to have to be fairly thoughtfully designed and ideally some sort of uh, oversight by the county commissioners uh, to to make sure that the people are not going to suffer um, from these fires that will surely come, and also that we don't end up uh, as taxpayers uh, spending an, an awful lot of money protecting homes in developments that just simply weren't designed pro- properly in the first place uh, and are uh, extra subject to, to being consumed by fire. So uh, it's a really a good time for a local government to sit down and take a look at this and see what can be done uh, with these developments in the future. You do have a section in the book on on what people can do. In the, post-construction, you can retrofit and do some things. What, what are some things people can do to, should do, protect themselves? 
Well, it's, it's really remarkably easy, and, and just a few things. You can remove all the vegetation from uh, an area about three feet around your house and replace it with uh, non-burnable material, whether that's pebbles or bricks or paving stones. Um, you can take a mesh, small-dimensional mesh screen and cover your attic vents. It's amazing how many... Uh, homes go up because embers are sucked into uh, attic vents, even pet doors. You can go out uh, to a distance of about 40 feet around your home and look for things like where shrubs grow up under large trees and therefore can serve as a, a, a ladder, basically, if a fire comes through where the fire cl- climbs the shrub, then climbs the tree. That creates a, an awful lot of chance for these sparking embers. By the way, most homes uh, burn not because of a wall of flame engulfing them, as we might imagine. They, they burn because of embers from uh, the fire blowing onto the roof or blowing next to the house. Um, and if, if you don't think these things are significant, I, I would point out um, a, a fairly infamous fire from Colorado called the Black Forest Fire a few years back in Colorado Springs. Now, one of the development subdivisions there um, that had not really done any kind of fire prevention experienced a home loss. Uh, 61 out of 67 homes were lost. And right next door in Cathedral Pines, as it was called, uh, they had made a priority to do the things I was just talking about, as well as do some thinning around the forest that surrounded the subdivision. They lost four homes out of about 80. So it makes a, a tremendous difference. And yet, surprisingly, at this point, only about 3% of the some 70,000 communities in the wildland-urban interface have done anything to protect themselves. So that, that, that would be a great start, no question about it. I believe we have a, a caller. We'll get, uh, get ready to bring the uh, caller in here. Um, great. not sure who we have. Uh, do we, a caller, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, this is Veronica Egan in Teasdale, Utah. Yes. And I, I've talked to you before. Uh, yes, <laughs> um, indeed. Yes, I'm, I, I kind of live on the edge of the Wui, the wildland urban interface. I'm down on the flats, though. But uh, I'm delighted to hear the topic of uh, uh, responsibility of local officials to see to it that um, appropriate development happens. And unfortunately, in a lot of these rural Utah counties, the county commissions are uh, dedicated to you can't tell a man what to do with his property. So we don't have zoning. We don't have uh, any kind of formal recognition of how you ought to set up your property if you're in the wildland-urban interface. And um, and consequently, disaster is inevitable. Mm. And uh, Veronica, before we have Gary uh, uh, respond, there was a fairly large fire in Wayne County a few years ago, wasn't there? I'm sorry, say again? Uh, there was a fairly large fire, I recall, in Wayne County. Oh, yes, right yeah. above my house. Uh, right yeah. above your house, wow. Yeah, right. And it well, was uh, it, it was intentionally set. It was, it was quite a deal. <laughs> wow. So, Gary, Gary Ferguson, um, your, your response. Well, yes, nice to be on uh, the air with you, Veronica, and you bring up a really important point, and and that is that a lot of local uh, officials around the West do have that sort of 
strong, independent, fiercely independent perspective that nobody's going to tell me what to do with my property. And and I do appreciate that. That's uh, that's all well and good. But at this point, we're uh, we're seeing that the rest of the communities and the rest of the nation are having to dig into their pockets for the kind of money necessary to fight these fires when they break out and uh, spread to. Uh, subdivisions in places that maybe shouldn't have had them or should have been designed a little bit more intelligently so they were easier to defend. So, um, you know, that, that, that's really where we're at, a fierce independence to do what I want, and then also uh, the ability of the community and the culture to say, well, yeah, wait a minute, but we're not going to pay for you to do what you want and the losses uh, that you might suffer and the cost for suppression. So we are going to have to figure that out. And I I think as these big megafires become more common, there, there's going to be more urgency to all sit down at the table. And, you know, that we're, we're really not talking about, uh, I, I think, overly uh, zealous regulations and rules. Uh, for instance, just two really quick ones. Some subdivisions only have one entrance and exit, and that makes it extremely hard both to evacuate and extremely hard to fight fires in. And secondly, sometimes approval uh, is given to developments that, have no um, sustainable deep water source to fight fires if, if fires should break out. And, you know, th- those are, are, are almost no-brainers to me that, that we should take such things into consideration sure. when, we, when we try to build our next subdivision. Right. And, and another point is that we're sending firefighters out to defend private property, risking their lives to defend yes. our private property, which is not fair. You know, I mean, well, that's a, should... that's a really good point, and and these fires <laughs> are becoming increasingly dangerous and difficult to fight. And probably uh, many listeners remember the Granite Mountain hotshots of the Arizona sure. a few years back. Nineteen of them perished. Um, and and you're right; most of the effort by the firefighters goes into, as as you can imagine, keeping the fire from going into subdivisions and then fighting um, in those subdivisions when. Uh, when the fire is at the back door. And so, yeah, you're right. They are putting their lives on the line for sometimes ill-advised uh, development projects. Veronica, thanks, right. thanks so much for that uh, perspective from Wayne County. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's uh, some important things, some smaller things that, that could be done, but sometimes there is resistance, as we've, uh, as we've been talking about. Um, I wonder, um, taking a step back at a larger view, the, the ecosystems, uh, 